Uh, welcome. Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute, where we speak for more than a minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical Justice. And today we're delighted, I'm delighted to bring Mr. Nick Puji uh, to the conversation. Who is he? Well, he's a litigator at Denton's, and I'll go into his bio in just a minute, but how did I meet him? He's actually helping several of our medical justice clients related to a scourge on the West Coast. The scourge is related to a website and the Americans with Disability Act and lawsuits that are being filed because uh, one or more individuals cannot access some or many components. Typically, it's just some components of the website and turning that into lawsuits. Uh, by background, Nick is a member of Denton's Litigation and Dispute Resolution Practice Group. Denton's, and he'll correct me if I'm wrong, is either the largest or one of the largest law firms in the world. Not not the region, but the world. And that's I'm sure cor- that's correct, Jeff. Yeah, we're, technically, we're the largest law firm by number of attorneys in the world at this point. All right. So by way of background, he represents an array of clients in complex business, employment, Trade secret, relevant to our conversation today, ADA, Americans with Disability Act, website accessibility and class action litigation. And he has extensive experience handling all aspects of litigation, arbitration, and appellate processes. He also advises clients on day-to-day employment issues, including employment policies and procedures, compliance, non-compete agreements, terminations, uh, and trainings all designed to avoid litigation. These are important matters um, in your day-to-day practice. These are the headaches that frequently, um, they they don't come up often, but when they come up, they become consuming. Um, he's also a member of Denton's Venture Technology and Emerging Growth Companies Practice and serves as the outside in-house counsel to numerous emerging growth and technology startup companies across the US and international. Finally, the Daily Journal has recognized Nick as a 2020 top 40 under 40 honoree, and we'll get more information on that shortly. Welcome, Nick. Great. Thanks very much, Jeff. I appreciate that. So, Nick, you're out on the West Coast. The West Coast is part of the Ninth Circuit. Maybe it's it's helpful just to start with what is a circuit, what is the Ninth Circuit, and what are you doing for some of our clients? That's a three-part question just to make it complicated. Certainly. Um, So the federal court system, uh, typically there are two court systems that someone would deal with on a daily basis uh, or if they ever have to go to court. One would be uh, the state court system. So each of the 50 50 states and and various territories have their own local court system. We call it state court. And then there's the federal court system. In the federal court system, it is divided by circuits. And so, for example, the Ninth Circuit is basically the circuit that covers the West Coast of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Second Circuit, for example, is New York. The Fifth Circuit is Texas. Uh, the Eighth Circuit, I believe, is is uh, in the Midwest, Missouri. And so um, each of the federal circuits are divided up. They don't go necessarily state by state. They go more so by region. I think there was a famous saying that the Ninth Circuit, um, it is it is the furthest west. Uh, circuit because it goes all the way to Alaska and Hawaii. It is also the furthest east circuit because I think it covers some of the islands, some of the U.S. territory islands that are technically Hmm. uh, closer to Asia and it's east and it's also the furthest north and it's also the furthest south. And so that was the, uh, for what it's worth, I mean, I, you know, I'm not looking for uh, a circuit brag here, but supposedly the Ninth Circuit is the furthest north, the furthest south, furthest west and east technically. 
covers a lot of territory then, correct? It does, correct, yeah. Yeah, so one of the issues related to the circuit is that in the federal <laughs> system, when a circuit appellate court uh, rules, it creates binding law for the uh, the lower uh, federal courts in that neighborhood, correct? That, that's correct. And it also creates persuasive law that other circuits can pick up on. And uh, they don't necessarily have to, it's not mandatory that they follow it, but it is persuasive in their own decision making. So it's probably helpful at this point to have a chat around the Domino's pizza case that got the online accessibility uh, challenge started. Uh, doctors and, or physicians were not part of this uh, brouhaha early on, but a number of our client physicians have been sued recently by um, prospective patients, uh, in this case now plaintiffs, claiming that their um, ability to access the website was um, challenged and they weren't able to read transcripts related to testimonials or there may be others who are visually impaired that couldn't navigate the websites. But um, it's a new world for the physicians. I think most doctors are intimately aware of the Americans with Disability Act. Um, mm -hmm. They know there are, there are parking spots allocated uh, in the lot for those who um, who are handicapped. They know that there needs to be a rail in the bathroom. They know there needs to be particular measurements um, or dimensions related to the mirror over the sink and so on and so forth. But having a, a website that conforms to norms is a new one. So sure. educate our listeners as to what's going on now in the Ninth Circuit. Yeah. Yeah, and if you don't mind, Jeff, I might expand out a little bit more broadly beyond just circuit to circuit and beyond Please. just the ADA, you know, and, and I suppose for the audience, they want to hear sort of a less technical version of this. But basically, what's going on starting probably, uh, probably six to eight years ago, uh, a trend, a legal trend started, which we now call, you know, the digital accessibility wave of litigation. And basically what uh, a group of lawyers figured out was sort of the idea that, you know, if a, if, a, if a disabled person uses a wheelchair and they require a ramp to get into a business to do business, well, why does a blind or a deaf person who uses a screen reading, screen reading program or closed captioning or nowadays voiceover function, if they're using those tools, Shouldn't all websites also be digitally accessible? In other words, shouldn't there be a digital ramp that allows them to use those tools to get into a business virtually? And so, you know, at first it was sort of a novel idea and there was a lot of eyebrows raised um, by the thought, but over time the courts, these types of cases started getting traction in the court system. And the Domino's Pizza case is one example of that where it's gone back and forth, it started um, in a in a in a trial federal court trial court here in Los Angeles, and the court gave a very honest answer in my opinion. They basically said, "Well, this area is too new, and we're not finding any legal guidance from Congress or the Department of Justice, and so we're just going to dismiss this case for now. But we're going to do it without prejudice. If the law changes or there becomes more clarity in the law, bring it back to us, and we'll look at this issue again." And then from there, it was appealed to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit, by the time they looked at it, they said, yeah, there is enough law. And we do think that websites need to be digitally accessible. They need to be accessible and compatible with screen reading programs in this instance. Domino's Pizza took it to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
who denied review and basically said, yeah, we're going to keep the Ninth, Ninth Circuit's decision in place. And so generally speaking, although I'm, I'm giving you a very simplified version of the briefing, the Domino's Pizza case basically, you know, holds their ground. It, it is a clear data point that says, yes, websites do need to be accessible. This is a real thing and businesses need to pay attention to it. The problem um, and where you start hearing moaning and groaning from a lot of clients and businesses is that the standards for compliance are not as regulated. So what you have here is this moment in time where there have been enough courts, some courts have dismissed these cases, but generally if you look at all the different court decisions across the country, they net out in favor of allowing these cases to proceed. And so it's a, it's a fileable case. It's a legitimate claim to bring. The problem is that the compliance is very difficult to figure out because there is a lack, a total vacuum of regulation regarding what does compliance mean. And so it's, it's sort of like, you know, the example I like to use is saying they put a, a sign on a highway that says, hey, no speeding, but they don't tell you what the speed limit is. They don't tell you if it's 55, if it's 75. And that is the frustration. That's what we're dealing with right now. Now, there are various parameters, and, and I don't mean. Go ahead, Jeff, if you wanted to ask a question. No, no, I was going to please keep going. Just, just to complete the point, you know, why we're in this situation now is so. On one hand, you do have courts generally recognizing these as valid legal claims. On the other hand, it's very difficult because the compliance parts are unregulated. So, generally speaking, there's a set of parameters called the WCAG, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. It's meant to be a set of guidelines that tells you, hey, these are the different things your website should do if it wants to be more readable to a screen reader. The problem is, is, is what's happening with these cases is that those WCAG guidelines are being weaponized and, and people are creating all these different scanning tools and reporting, uh, uh, scanning and reporting tools. People are manually testing websites against these parameters. And anytime they find an error, they're saying, oh, that means your website's not compatible. You know, therefore, my client suffered harm and then I'm going to sue you. And so what, what we're working on collectively, um, in fact, there is now legislation in Congress called the Online Accessibility Act. Um, generally, the government organizations are working on creating more clarity around what does compliance mean and what does it not mean. But in the meantime, while you have this situation where you can file a claim, but it's very uh, difficult to prove whether you're compliant or not, it's, it's an invitation to lots of different law firms to file as many claims as they can and that's, that's where this started and that's where it's going. Um, one of the trends that you see, which takes us to, to uh, uh, the audience on this podcast, is these different law firms look for different industries to go after on a weekly, daily, monthly basis. One week, um, it could be the restaurants. The next week, it could be the auto manufacturers. The next week, it could be clothing retailers. Well, as they work down the chain, I think some of these law firms have noticed that uh, doctors, uh, particularly dentists, uh, plastic surgeons, um, anyone who's doing procedure, procedure-heavy doctors, typically have videos on their on their websites. And so, one of the niche areas that one of these, say, 30 or 40 law firms that file these cases are, is they're going after doctors for not having closed captioning enabled on their websites. And so that's that's what brings us to how this how we got to where we are in this digital accessibility arena as more law firms enter the space and, and sort of you know, go for the gold, essentially, you have all sorts of variations of these lawsuits. They originally started with screen readers for blind people reading websites. That turned into mobile applications. You know, so blind or deaf people trying to use mobile applications. That then turned into closed captioning. 
And now we even see law firms filing um, uh, claims against content providers when they don't have a voiceover function. So for example, uh, this would be for a blind person who's watching TV, they can't see what's going on and so a voice pops up and dictates what's going on. Um, if anyone's seen, there's a Spectrum commercial that's being circulated right now where there's a, there's a blind woman watching a car chase scene and it's just showing how the technology works or it's describing what's happening. These are all variations um, of the digital accessibility lawsuit. And there are more, there are more coming and there's other examples I can give you, you know, uh, different trends that we've seen, but that, that's, this is sort of the big ball of digital accessibility that we're dealing with. And unfortunately, doctors are being pulled into that ball uh, uh, through oftentimes either through their videos or through the websites themselves that may not be WCAG compliant. I mean, what's particularly frustrating about this is that doctors are not technical. I mean, well, I mean, they're technical in terms of performing their craft, but they're not technical in terms of uh, creating and managing a website. All they would do at the end is say, hey, I like how this, I like the look and feel of it. But ultimately, uh, for most doctors, 90 to 99% of this is outsourced to a third party to craft, create, design, and they would reasonably rely upon a webmaster or a firm to make sure that it's compliant. Um, they don't, in fact, I would argue they most of them don't even know the question to ask of their webmaster. So what role do webmasters have in terms of coming to the 21st century and providing reasonable assurances that the website's not gonna end up as a, a target of a lawsuit, Certainly. if that's even relevant? So, you know, at a baseline, I would say that, that anyone listening to this who has a website um, should either talk to uh, a law firm like us or they need to talk to a development firm or at least the people who put their website together. And I think it's really two questions. The first question is, you know, I understand that there are websites relating to, there are lawsuits related to accessibility on websites. Can you make sure we confirm that my website is compliant? And that could mean WCAG compliance or otherwise, but I need to make sure that my website is demonstrably accessible to screen reading programs. That's the first step. The second step is if to the extent that a doctor has a video or any video clip, they wanna make sure either through their webmaster or through YouTube that they do have closed captioning available. And that again, that's demonstrable. They can prove that they have closed captioning available. Those to me are the two baseline questions that they wanna ask. The problem is if you, depending on which web developer you use, they may not know what they're doing. They may say, oh yeah, yeah, it's accessible, don't worry about it, and they're not running through the test, they're not creating evidence, and so that's where I would come into, um, we do get, you know, on a daily basis approached by new clients who will come to us and say, look, we wanna make sure we're, we're protected, how do we do that? And so our team actually has an audit process that they create, which is, which is designed to mimic the way that these plaintiff's law firms will file a lawsuit, and so we have like a seven or eight point check that we'll do. I know that there are development companies out there that do it. Some of them we partner with. Um, but that's what I would be doing uh, is, is making sure that the website has closed captioning enabled to the extent there are videos and to make sure that it's generally accessible and that you can prove that. Because at this moment, the, what the landscape looks like is you have about 30 or 40 of these law firms and they are on a daily basis filing new cases. I, I see about 20 to 30 cases filed a day. And at this point now, we've probably seen tens of thousands of lawsuits filed. Um, and so it is, it's a very, very active area. If you get sued, it's not the end of the world. You know, certainly we can help you navigate that in a, in a relatively affordable way. I mean, this is not, you know, this is probably, 
probably a low five-figure liability per lawsuit, but nobody wants to get sued. Nobody wants to spend that money. Um, and uh, there are things you can do on the front end to make sure that you are protected. It's like anything else, prevention is certainly better than treatment of the disease. And if I'm hearing you correctly, just enabling closed captioning, which probably is a feature embedded into YouTube, you just need to know how and where to turn it on will go a long way to mitigating a potential future problem. Is that is that accurate? That's absolutely right. And frankly, for most of these, you know, this particular, call it a strain of litigation, this particular strain could easily be prevented just with that simple, um, giving, paying some simple attention to those videos and enabling closed captioning. I mean, part of it, part of the problem involves knowing how to prioritize use of your resources with a webmaster because to make it completely, I mean, most people come with a website already in place. And if you're going to have to make a gazillion changes, one wonders whether you should just start from scratch and just begin afresh. Uh, On the other hand, if you know where most of the money is, where most of the problems are emerging, then perhaps you can band-aid those specific problems, playing the odds that you're likely to become mostly compliant and avoid litigation, but you'll never be completely compliant. I mean, in some ways, it's almost like taxes. It's very difficult to, you know, to understand the gazillion volumes of the tax code and never make any error whatsoever, but you should know how to avoid the costly errors. Yeah, so I I guess what I'm asking is in terms of allocating resources, because one of the webmasters we spoke with said to to do this right and make sure all of the labels um, of of the pictures and how it navigates uh, could easily cost $15,000, you know, um, but, on the other hand, just enabling and turning on the closed captioning with YouTube videos would require a minimal amount of effort. So part of it is just knowing where the the big bang for your buck is in terms of time and resources for updating your website. That's is. correct. That is correct. And typically when our team works with a new client, we will do an audit. It's a relatively efficient process, You know, maybe an hour or two of legal work. Um, we'll do the audit and we'll provide a menu of different things that we think need to be fixed. Ultimately, it's up to each client to decide what they want to fix and where is sort of the 80-20 you know, benefit mm-hmm. is. What, can they, what are the 20% of things that they can do to get 80% protection? And so we'll typically give clients that. Some clients say, I want to do everything. I don't want to be susceptible. Some clients say, look, it's not in our budget. Let's just do some basic things. But you're correct. There are definitely some very easy things, you know, basic postings like an accessibility statement, um, enabling closed captioning um, that are very, very easy for any business to do. Whether a business has the ability to do development work or refresh their website, that obviously is a different question. The other issue is that frequently this is not one and done, meaning that once you've addressed your website because you're frequently putting up new content, you'll need to make sure that the new content is also accessible to those who are disabled, correct? That's correct. Normally when we work with a client, it's it's initially a sprint. So we'll we'll outline the things that need to be done. We'll work with the client for a period of a couple of weeks to make sure that the website gets updated. Once it's updated, then we'll set up a protocol for maintaining those types of high scores. And I would say generally speaking, it really varies business to business. Some businesses make updates once a year, some some updates, some websites update every day you've got to figure out how often and rapid the changes are on your website and, you know, over time, which changes are taking you um, uh, creating accessibility issues. 
and then basically come up with a rescan protocol, which normally ends up being probably once a month or once a quarter, where a business can figure out the right ways to to test itself and then make those changes along the way. So it's it's like anything; it needs to be monitored um, in a reasonable way and then given attention over time. Uh, because as you know, Jeff, you know websites are living, breathing organisms at this point. They're constantly changing. They've got new content coming and going. And sometimes when those changes happen, it's possible that they fall out of you know WCAG compliance or otherwise. And the issues are likely broader than just your single commercial website. It probably also includes social media, Facebook, Instagram, and so on. Uh, do those create new and unique issues, or it's really part and parcel of the, the same issue we've been chatting about? I, it's a great question, and we've been talking about that. I have yet to see any litigation on that, so maybe maybe we not talk about it <laughs> okay. for, for fear for fear of uh, uh, giving someone a good idea. But um, I have not seen too much in terms of social media and accessibility yet, but I believe it may be coming. Um, and, and so certainly there is lots of litigation related to social media, but they tend to be other types of issues at the moment. All right. So the Domino's pizza case in the Ninth Circuit, yeah, we're going to get kind of uh, wonky here for just a second. The Domino's pizza case in the Ninth Circuit gave uh, fire and life to filing these cases uh, in federal court out in the West Coast. But there was a recent case on the East Coast, a counter narrative which suggested, well, hold off for a moment. Websites may not be covered directly under the Americans with Disability Act. And, and of course, clever lawyers will find ways to get around uh, even that. But it, it's probably helpful just to describe this counter narrative that is sure. the, the pushback to the Ninth Circuit opinion. Sure. Um, you know, and, and I, and I want to be clear. Um, you can use different metaphors if you like. You know, some you could argue that the digital accessibility cases uh, for businesses are like, you know, like COVID-19. They have lots of variants and they're constantly trying to break through the different uh, protections. Um, I also say it's a little bit like email spam. You know, email spam, you set up an email filter and whoever's saying those emails figures out how to change the wording to get around those filters. These lawsuits are very much designed to do that. And a lot of the law firms that file these cases are um, aggressive, smart, nimble, and they know how to work around the developments in the law. So, for example, um, at, at a certain time period, um, when, it, when, when it was not uh, uh, advantageous to file in federal court, all of a sudden these cases started getting filed in California state court. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they said, hey, the ADA has a nexus requirement, you have, you have some of these lawsuits now, they're not even filed with the ADA, they're filed under the UNRRA Act um, uh, and, and different types of laws to get people to cross the finish line. And so, yeah, What is the UNRRA Act, and just to give our listeners context? So the, the UNRRA Act is a California public accommodation statute. Mm -hmm. um, it's the statute where if someone's turned away from a business, somebody will, will typically bring a claim under the UNRRA Act. And so, and, and, the, and I guess the uh, advantage of using the UNRRA Act is that the case law for these types of digital accessibility cases is, is much stronger than the ADA, and it also gives somebody the same amount of damages. It has a fixed number, of, uh, it has a fixed penalty associated with it, and it also has an award of attorney's fees. And so, for purposes of filing these lawsuits, the UNRRA Act is attractive. And so now you're seeing a lot of the West Coast law firms filing under the UNRRA along with the ADA, or instead of going with the ADA. Um, similarly, you see this in in uh, Florida, and this is, you know, I assume this is where we'll go. In the conversation. So another well-publicized case in this arena is the Winn-Dixie case. Winn-Dixie is a grocery store chain. Um, 
uh, in Florida, they took one of these cases to trial and ended up losing and were, and the other side was awarded their attorney's fees, which could have easily been, you know, a six figure award just for the attorney's fees to take a case through trial. When Dixie appealed in the 11th circuit, the 11th circuit came back in Win Dixie's favor and said, look, if you're not really selling anything on your website, then we don't really think that this ADA claim should apply to you. And so, so that was a win, I think, for businesses, uh, particularly businesses that get targeted in Florida. What do we see? Within a week, we see the Florida law firm starting to file under the Rehabilitation Act under Florida. And so they said, okay, well, if ADA is out, um, I'm going to find another set of laws to use and go after those. And so very much you see these law firms being nimble. It's not so much about the ADA, although it could be about the ADA. But now what you're seeing over the past more than half a decade now, these law, these lawsuits are becoming more specific. Um, they're turning into variants in order to keep breaking through. And so we're going to have to keep dealing with that over time. And in the rest of the country, their circuits have not yet spoken. So they either point to the Ninth Circuit or the Eleventh Circuit, or I don't know if any cases have even come up into the additional circuits in the heartland. Is that correct? There are probably, I would estimate there are 40 to 60 published decisions on digital accessibility cases. Um, some of the courts in New York have dismissed these cases based on a motion to dismiss. Um, I guess the other other well-known decision is the Kroger decision, another grocery store chain, coincidentally, um, uh, was sued in New York um, federal court. There they went to the judge and they said, you know, you know, or to the court and they said and they presented to the court that they had already were they were already aware of these issues, that they had already started making fixes, um, uh, accessibility fixes on their website before they got sued. In that instance, the court dismissed the case. And I believe that judge has dismissed a, a second, two or three other cases also for other grounds. So you could say that that particular court doesn't view these types of digital accessibility cases very favorably. On the other hand, you have just as many, if not more, cases in New York where, the, where a judge has allowed a case to proceed beyond a motion to dismiss phase. And so, you know, as I said before, you have probably 40 to 60 different decisions that are related to these digital accessibility cases all across the country. Unfortunately, where they net out is still allowing these cases to generally proceed. And so um, this is what you expect. And, and why do you have so many decisions without really a clear message? Well, there's a, there's a lack of guidance from Congress. There is incomplete or a lack of guidance from the Department of Justice. And you have, like I said, 30 or so law firms actively pumping these cases into the court systems. Of course, you're going to get a bunch of different decisions that are inconsistent with each other. And so that's what, that's what we're dealing with at the moment. What are the impediments for the Department of Justice to weigh in what they believe is the proper interpretation of the law? And do you ever do you believe the Supreme Court will get involved in this to break the tie, if you will, or will that even matter? This is all speculation for me, so so I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm certain that there are businesses that have lobbied the Department of Justice to try to get some some more feedback on it. Uh, the Department of Justice has also provided feedback. They have. They originally said that, yes, the website could be a place of accommodation. They also say that the W, interestingly, and contrary to a lot of court decisions, the De Department of Justice actually says that the WCAG is not the only set of guidelines that could lead to digital accessibility. Unfortunately, they don't give any other examples of what those might be. So um, in other words, the Department of Justice says, hey, the WCAG is out there and it's good, but it's not the end all be all. Um, you can interpret that however you like, but it's, it's 
I think, still not specific enough to stop these lawsuits or give any clear guidance. Um, I think that over time, Congress will come, you know, and there is, like I said, the Online Accessibility Act that's pending in Congress. Maybe that or some version of it gets passed over time, and then we'll have to see, you know, how that impacts litigation and compliance uh, guidance to businesses. Um, I don't know if the Supreme Court will get involved. They had an opportunity to get involved with the Domino's Pizza decision, and they denied uh, review of that of that appeal. And so at least the one instance that we're aware of, the, the Supreme Court said they weren't interested in getting involved, or at least they thought that the decisions should stay intact. But let's see. Let's see where this area goes. Let's see what Congress does. And maybe the Supreme Court will be asked again to review it, and they'll, and they'll decide differently. Um, it's, it's really hard for me to say, you know, even as a practicing lawyer, it's, it's speculation. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's info news at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336 358 5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.